The scripture reading today is from the letter of Paul to the Romans, chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Hear the word of the Lord. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and not all members have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually we are members of one another. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, prophecy in proportion to faith, ministry in ministering, the teacher in teaching, the exhorter in exhortation, the giver in generosity, the leader in diligence, the compassionate in cheerfulness. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow before God in prayer. Let's pray. Holy God, you have promised that your word that goes forth will never return to you void, but will accomplish everything that you send it forth to do. So we pray that you would take the word that is read and the word that is proclaimed and by the power of your Holy Spirit, breathe into them your word, your true word, so that we would hear a word from you this day, be comforted and challenged and changed. For the sake of Jesus Christ, we ask this. Amen. In our sermons through the winter and the spring, we're looking together at one of the most important documents in the whole of the Bible, and especially in the New Testament, Paul's letter to the church in Rome that we often simply call Romans. Last week, we looked at the issue of suffering through the lens of Romans chapter 8, in which we find no answer to the question, why suffering, which we so often ask when we're in the middle of it. But what we do find are tremendous resources, not only for coping with suffering, but as the Apostle Paul would say, boasting in suffering or triumphing in suffering, dealing with it with a measure of confidence. Remember, Paul, the author of this letter to the Romans, suffered enormously himself. He was often persecuted brutally for his faith, sometimes to the point almost of death, and in the end, to death itself, as we'll hear later on. So he speaks about what he knows when he says that in suffering, what we need to remember first is that God's purpose is at work in all things, even if it seems bizarre. In all things, God is working his purpose out. Was at work in the suffering of Jesus, will be at work in our suffering as well. That God's help is available at all times. He mentions the prayers of the Spirit and the prayers of Jesus for us. God remembers us by name. God's future, he says, is secure and is the basis for a hope that we can have even in the midst of suffering that this too shall pass and that another future shall come in the plan and in the scheme of God. This is not merely optimism, but it's based on the resurrection. 
resurrection follows the suffering of Good Friday. And then finally, he mentions God's presence. Even in suffering, when we think that God is far, far away, God is there, says the Apostle Paul. Nothing can separate us from the love of God made known in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus died to reconcile us to God. Nothing, even if it looks like hell, can separate us from that presence and from that love. And the question is, of course, do we believe this? Do we hold these truths as bedrock faith within our lives? So Romans 8, we looked at this last time, no answer to the question why, but plenty of resources for coping with times of difficulty, whether it's persecution or whether it's just the loneliness we might feel during this time of COVID. This brings us to today, and we're going to be skipping some chapters in Romans, coming back later on after Easter to chapters 9, 10, and 11, and we're moving straight on to chapter 12 in Romans, in which Paul reminds us not only that Christians are uh, not immune to suffering, there's no escape from suffering in the Christian life, Jesus doesn't promise us that, but in fact, we are called at times to enter into it. Once again, at different levels, some it's extreme. Some it's just the difficulties and the burdens of life that we have that we've been called to enter into in some way, shape, or form. So listen again to the opening verses of our scripture reading where Paul says in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, because of the mercies of God shown to us, in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, the kind of worship that brings pleasure to God. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, the way you think, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Present your bodies, all of your life as a living sacrifice. Be ready to give it all to God, hook, line, and sinker, even if it involves suffering and perhaps even death itself. The question I want to ask today is why this imagery? Why this imagery of sacrifice and suffering for understanding and describing the Christian life? Why the imagery? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Well, one reason, I suppose, is quite straightforward, and that is the fact of Jesus' example comes before us, especially during this season of Lent and as we approach Good Friday. The pattern of his life that we're called to follow is not just the pattern of love that he showed to those who were around him while he ministered to them and taught them, but the pattern that we have been called to follow is the pattern of Jesus who lives for us and dies for us as well. If Jesus suffered, Paul thinks, then we have been called to follow him into that same path. And he was not the only Christian in the early days of the church who thought this way. Others did as well. And we find this explicitly stated in the first letter of Peter and in the second chapter where we read this at verses 20 and 21. When you do right and suffer for it, says first Peter, you have God's approval. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. So we have the example of Jesus, and this is one reason why Paul sees suffering 
as part of the Christian life, why he uses sacrificial imagery, because Jesus died as a sacrifice for you and me. This is an essential way of thinking about the Christian life, and this should never then take us by surprise when we say, why is this happening? I thought I was a believer that everything would be good. No. Well, yes, it will be good, but no, no, the path has not been promised as one that is easy. But there's another reason as well for the use of this sacrificial imagery to describe the Christian life. It's not just Jesus' example, though that is powerful, of course, but it's what we might call, and what I want to call today, Paul's worldview. Paul's worldview. You see, when Paul thinks about the world and God's purposes in the world, he filters everything, connects everything, through three different and connected lenses. Three different and connected lenses. Let me try to explain it this way. The first lens is the Garden of Eden. Everything he thinks about God and you and me is filtered through the imagery of the Garden of Eden, which, according to Genesis chapter 3, we've all been thrown out of, excluded from, barred from getting back into. On the outside lies death. Not a pleasant thought, but that's where we are. And the absence of God, now, not the complete absence of God, because we all experience God, but the intimate experience of God for which we are created, we do not have that. The relationship has been broken. Lives have been twisted. We're on the outside of the garden. Or to put it in Milton's terms, paradise has been lost and desperately needs to be regained. So that's the first lens. The second lens through which the Apostle Paul sees everything about God and God's purposes for your life and mine are images which come from other parts of the Old Testament Scripture. Second lens is the tabernacle and the temple. The tabernacle built by Moses in the wilderness while the people were journeying from slavery to the Promised Land. And then the temple built in Jerusalem by King Solomon. If you look at the picture that you'll see on your screen just now. You'll see a picture of the inside of what we call the inner sanctum of the temple, the Holy of Holies. Sometimes when we read about the description of the building of the temple or the tabernacle in pages of Scripture, I find, and perhaps you do too, that I skip those parts. They seem to be highly complicated, and at times I say, what's all this about? But what's fascinating is this, when you read in Leviticus and Number and in 1 Kings and in 2 Chronicles about the building of the tabernacle and the temple, but this is especially true of the temple, when you put all the details together, a marvelous picture emerges. What you see is that the interior of the temple built in Jerusalem is a replication of the Garden of Eden. You can see the palm trees that are there, the flourishing nature that is inside the building, angels guarding the Ark of the Covenant, which is the symbol of the intimate presence of the living God. And when you move to the outside of the Holy of Holies, still in the temple compound, you can see the altar with the smoke going up as the sacrifices are offered to God. This symbolism is highly important in the story of Scripture and in Paul's mind. Both the tabernacle in the desert and the temple in Jerusalem were gifts that God gave to his ancient people, and they formed a sort of a summons by God, an invitation by God to come back into God's intimate presence. 
I want you to re-enter the Garden of Eden from which you've been excluded. I want you to leave death behind and to live with me forever. But, and this is also there in the symbolism, you cannot get back in to the most intimate presence of God unless you have a sacrifice. It's there in the imagery. And unless you have a priest who will offer that sacrifice to God so that between us and this restoration in Eden are the priests and the altar and the sacrifices, which it is the job of the priests to offer continually before God. So that's lens number two. We've got lens number one, the Garden of Eden. Lens number two, the temple and the tabernacle. That brings us to the third lens, and these are all intimately connected. And that lens, as you might guess, is Jesus. The third lens is Jesus. In fact, when Paul looks at Jesus, he has both of those two previous lenses in mind, both the Garden of Eden and the temple. And when we put our faith in Jesus, Paul indicates it's not just to be a casual faith. We've been called to put our trust in him. It's not just to be, yeah, I believe in him a little bit. But he sees our faith as something by which, in a sense, we climb into Jesus. Our lives are so intimately tied in with his. It's as if we're entering into him. In fact, he sees Jesus as if Jesus were the Garden of Eden, as if Jesus were the temple or the tabernacle. It's sort of like climbing into an airplane and being safe as you go into the sky, climbing onto a ship and being safe as you go across water, you entrust your life into this vehicle which will carry you where you could never have gone otherwise. Well, when we put our trust in Jesus, and Paul speaks about living in Christ again and again and again, inside of Christ, again and again and again, Paul says it's as if we're entering into a building. Jesus is a building. Jesus is our new home. Jesus is our new house. Jesus is the temple or the garden. And by him, we find ourselves back in God's intimate presence, back in the garden again, for which we were created and which we were made. The, the gates of paradise which have been closed are open wide, and access into the presence of God in which we stand has been granted. This is how Paul wants us to think about ourselves with a transformed mind to think this way about ourselves, and then to ask this question. Okay, so I'm back in the garden. I'm back in the temple. I'm back in the tabernacle. Who am I now? Who am I now? And there are only a limited number of answers, because we know that the only beings that are allowed into the temple are either priests or sacrifices. Those are the two, two and only two that can get back in. And so Paul says we are to think of our lives as being the lives of priests offering continuing sacrifices to God. And what is this sacrifice that we offer? Well, it's not a blood sacrifice. Jesus died for us. It's a sacrifice of our lives that we offer to God. As priests, we offer our own lives as sacrifices to God. And this is how we are to think with renewed minds about the Christian life. So, back to our scripture, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. 
I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, by everything that God has done for us in Jesus Christ to bring us back into his intimate presence, to be like a priest and present a sacrifice to God, and be like the sacrifice itself, make an offering of your own bodies, your whole lives, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, the kind of thing that brings great pleasure to God. Do not, he says, be conformed or limited to thinking the way the world thinks, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Change the way you think. Bring this biblical dimension of thinking into your minds at all times, the way you see life, the lenses through which you view life, who you are, what your purpose is. And when you do that, you'll be able to discern the will of God, he says, the right path for your life with this transformed mind, this beautiful way of thinking of ourselves as in the garden, back in the temple, as priests who have been called to offer all kinds of offerings from our lives to God, and then to see ourselves as a life offered to God. Sometimes, like a sacrifice, to the point of death. Some Christians throughout history have given their lives as sacrifices to the point of death, and if called to do so, and I wonder at times whether I could do this myself, we've been called to do the same, but this is our heritage. Go back to uh, the mid-80s, 60s, so about 10 years after Paul is writing this letter and about 30 years after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And a terrible persecution of Christians arose under the Emperor Nero. And it's probably during this time that the Apostle Paul lost his life, beheaded for the cause of Jesus Christ. The second century Roman historian Tacitus describes the persecutions of Nero like this. He says, Nero falsely accused and executed those people called Christians who were infamous for their abominations. The originator of the name Christ, this is one of the earliest references to Jesus outside of the Scripture, and it's historically congruent with the Scripture. The originator of the name Christ was executed as a criminal by the procurator Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius. The ones seized first were those who admitted their faith, and then using the information they provided, a vast multitude were convicted not so much for the crime of burning the city, but for hatred of the human race. Additionally, the way they perished became like a sport. They were killed by dogs, having hides of beasts attached to them, nailed to crosses, set aflame, and when the daylight passed away, they were used as nighttime lamps. So some, some throughout history in all kinds of ways, have offered their lives as a total sacrifice to God through our Lord Jesus Christ, while others have significantly put to death a part of their lives in order that they might serve God more faithfully, their safety, their security, their ambition, their wealth, their fame, their fears. In the New York Times six years ago, columnist Nicholas Kristof wrote these powerful words. He said this, he said, I have little in common politically or theologically with evangelicals, or while I'm at it, conservative Roman Catholics. But I've been truly awed by those I've seen in so many remote places, combating illiteracy and warlords, famine and disease, 
humbly struggling to do the Lord's work as they see it. In fact, he writes, a disproportionate share of the aid workers I've met in the wildest places over the years, long after anyone sensible had evacuated, have been evangelicals, nuns, and priests. And then he adds this, it is offensive to see good people like these being derided. And at the time he was writing, that's what was happening. So some have given their all, thinking of lives in terms of sacrifices for Jesus. And others have become living sacrifices for Jesus by bearing witness to him, by renouncing this, that, or the next thing, living in precarious or dangerous places. But what about the rest of us? What about the rest of us? How are we to respond to Paul's admonition to think sacrificially about our lives, where we live, right here and now? I know we're isolated, and I know that for some of us, this is just a really, really hard period of time. And we've talked about suffering. Yet, all of us still who are able to watch this, compared to many people in the world, we live in relative comfort in the midst of the wealthiest nation on earth. What does it mean for us to be living sacrifices here and now? Well, I think that Paul would say something like this, that the place to begin to think about this is not by focusing on the action part of being a living sacrifice. How can I be a living sacrifice? But first of all, on the thinking part of being a living sacrifice with the renewal of our minds so that we can assess what is the will of God, what is good and right and perfect. Listen again. Chapter 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, the way you think, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And then in verse 3, he adds these additional words about our thinking. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. In other words, Paul is saying, start the transition in your life by thinking about what you are thinking about, by thinking about what is in your mind, by reminding yourself of the importance and the consuming importance of these lenses through which the Apostle Paul sees life, this sacrificial imagery. Where are we? Where is my life lived out? Not just geographically here, but spiritually. And who am I? not just on a human level, but spiritually, and whose am I? Once again, not just on a human level, but spiritually. And remind ourselves that by the sheer grace and mercy of God, we have been brought by Jesus Christ into God's house and into God's family, into the garden and into the temple, into the intimate presence of God, so that as with Adam and Eve in the beginning, God is now the one who gives to us our marching orders. But unlike Adam and Eve in the beginning, our choice is to listen and follow sacrificially, no matter what the cost, because we know better. We know the one who gives us the commands, and this is the one who lived and died for us. His will for us is best no matter what it is or where it lies. 
God, help us to think that way. Henry Nouwen, in his book, The Living Reminder, Rethinking Life, New Minds, puts it like this. To walk in the presence of the Lord means to move forward in life in such a way that all our desires, thoughts, and actions are constantly guided by him. When we walk in the Lord's presence, back in the garden, everything we see, hear, touch, or taste should remind us of him. This is what is meant by a prayerful life, and I would add a sacrificial life, sacrificing all those other thoughts which want to dominate our lives. It is not a life in which we say many prayers, but a life in which nothing, absolutely nothing, is done, said, or understood independently of him who is the origin and purpose of our existence. Get that straight, and you'll find other things falling into place. God will lead us into whatever the sacrificial life it is that God wants for us to live. We start by a transformed mind, putting to death, sacrificing those thoughts which are outside God's will and replacing them with those thoughts by which we see ourselves as God would see us. And only then discerning, Lord, what practically am I now to do for you as a living sacrifice? Do you see yourself that way? Have you allowed your, your whole mind to be transformed by this biblical way of thinking? Are you asking God to change the way we think so we're not dominated by the news or by the current philosophy around about us, but by Jesus Christ and the gospel of his grace and his mercy? And will we allow, will we allow God, as God did with Moses, to take our lives in whatever direction God wants them to go? Here's the paradox, the final word. It's only by thinking in this sacrificial way in which we give up and lose our lives. And Jesus teaches this so clearly that we, in the end, will find the only life that is truly worth living, the beautiful life that God wants us to live. And sacrificially, as Mother Teresa used to say, we'll find ourselves being empowered, enabled to do something beautiful for God. Let's pray. Holy God, you know we are weak. You know we make resolutions and we leave them behind but come by the power of your Spirit and enable us to move forward with you in our thinking and in our doing. Amen.